And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel. This morning I'll be reading Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. I should clarify for those that might be visiting or uh, or who feel like they might be missing out on something, if you were to show up at a church and hear this passage being read and preached, you think, wow, something's going on and he's got to deal with it. No, we are going through Matthew's gospel and last week we were in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 18 and we are now in verses 15 through 20. And, and the reason that it may feel particularly relevant is because it's always going to be relevant because there is always conflict. Psalm 133 verse 1 rejoices, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And yet much of the Bible would not exist if it was not for conflict between the brothers and sisters of Christ. Most of the letters of the New Testament exist because the people of God were struggling to get along and it needed to be addressed. And yet God in His wisdom has not just saved us as individuals to live individual lives on individual spiritual journeys. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. God in His wisdom and in His love has determined that those who wish to live out the gospel must do so in a community of faith where we learn to live out the gospel together, as we are like to say in this church. And yet it's not easy. Especially when there is sin and conflict and hurt feelings. In these verses, Jesus is amazingly clear that sin in the life of a believer is not a private matter at all, but a community matter. Which is the testimony of all Scripture. That we do not, any of us, live to ourselves alone, but to one another. And so Jesus here teaches that it is the responsibility and the power of a Christian community to remove the presence of sin from that community. But in order to do that, they must recognize the presence of Christ in the community. First, we're going to spend a good bit of time looking at how and why we remove the presence of sin from the community of God's people. Though it would be nice to imagine that living in good Christian community would be a life of peace and happiness and love where everyone gets along, the reality is each and every one of us is still in a process of sanctification. We are still learning to turn away from sin, which means we all still sin. 
And sin affects the people around us, the people we are close to. So when there is sin in the community of God's people, we should not be surprised. But we should also not ignore it just because it is common. And we should not deal with it the way the world deals with hurt feelings or sin, however that may be. Jesus shows what it means to see and to confront the sin of your brother or your sister in Christ. Because being in godly community means that we have a responsibility. It's important to see in these verses that there are three groups of people Jesus talks about, each of whom have a degree of responsibility. There's the one who is sinned against, the one who's hurt by the sin. There's the one who does the sinning. And then there's the broader community. And all three of these groups have a biblical responsibility to deal with that sin. First, let's look at the responsibility of the one who's been sinned against, the one who has been hurt by the sin. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you. And I should note that that word if uh, doesn't mean, hey, this might happen, and if it does, here's what you do. It's the kind of if that means when. When this happens, here's what you do. So if your brother sins against you, Does that mean that if someone is in sin but it's not hurting you, then you wash your hands of it and you have nothing to do with this because it doesn't affect you? Well, no. Scripture speaks to that elsewhere. In Galatians 6, it says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The point here is that you can't say that you're off the hook just because it wasn't against you. If you witness someone in sin, if you are aware of somebody not living according to God's Word, you have a responsibility. But Jesus here is specifically speaking of sin against you when it's hurt you. When a word or action has affected you, He says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There is a lot we could say about this. In fact, we we could have just had a whole message on that line alone. And in fact, because there is, there is such richness to this topic, and it is such an important and relevant and practical thing, uh, for the month of May, once we finish our Evangelism Sunday School series, for four weeks in May, we're going we're gonna to look at the issue of peacemaking and resolving conflict and, and how we make peace in the body of Christ and the importance of that. But for now, let's note a few things. Number one, Your first responsibility, it says, is to go. To go to them. Now, many of you are aware the Bible was not originally written in English. It was written in other languages. The New Testament was written in Greek. And there's times where we can take a word that that in English isn't very clear. And if we look at the original language, we can get a much better picture of what this is saying. So this word go, when Jesus says go, I thought it would be good to look at what the Greek says about go. And do you know what the Greek word means? Go. I hope that clears up any confusion you have. And I felt it's important to emphasize that because there's so much else that we do instead of go. Isn't there? When someone hurts us, when we see somebody that has done something wrong, we don't go. We, we stew about it. We, we complain about it to ourselves. We complain to others. We, we decide to leave it alone and just see if maybe they'll start to feel guilty on their own and do something about it, and it'll fix itself. But the command of Jesus is to go directly to that person and deal with it. 
Another thing we need to note about this verse is that Jesus is talking about sin. If your brother or sister sins against you, we're not talking about uh, they've done something that you don't like or that offended you or maybe upset you, something you don't particularly approve of, but which is not clearly forbidden or, or commanded in God's word. You know, we're talking about sin issue here. Not every difference rises to the level of sin. Make sure that if you are confronting a brother or sister about something, uh, you're confronting them with the authority of God's Word. I recall once years ago, years and years ago, um, where I was confronted by someone who said, Brother, your beard offends me. I don't think it is appropriate for a minister of the gospel to have a beard. Okay, well, you're not confronting me about sin at that point. You're confronting me about something else entirely. When you confront a brother or sister, let it be with the authority of God's Word. Because then it is not you that is telling them what to do. It is God and His Word that is instructing them. Notice that we are called to do this in a specific way, in private. Not on a group text. Not on a Facebook post. Not in front of a bunch of other people so that they might be shamed into proper behavior but privately. Now, as a side note, there are times and and instances where a a private confrontation would actually be inappropriate. We wouldn't expect that a young child who has been sinned against would be expected to privately confront a person who has sinned against them. Or someone who has been the victim of violent abuse shouldn't be expected to privately confront their abuser. Now, that's not what's in view here. Jesus is making it clear that we're not to make a public issue of things that can be dealt with privately. Now, when we're talking about those who are weak or who need help in confrontation, we get to that in a little bit. The Lord has given us the church. He has given us one another to help us do these things as we're supposed to. But when we can, we are called to privately confront the one who has hurt us. And one more thing to notice about the responsibility. There's a lot of responsibility on the one who's been sinned against. Motivation. Look at the second half of verse 15. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That word gained means to win, to profit, to have a reward, to win over. The goal when you confront someone with their sin is not to defeat them. It's not to shame them. It's not for you to be right and them to be wrong. The goal is to win your sister or your brother over because if they are in sin, true sin, they are enslaved to that sin. And you want them to be free of that. You want to win them over and liberate them, to rescue them and bring them back to a place of fellowship and obedience. Now let's move on and look at the responsibility of the one who has sinned. Really, this person had a responsibility prior to what we see here. You can't read this verse, you know, as much as the emphasis is on go, the one who's been sinned against is responsible to act. That doesn't mean the one who's done the sinning is supposed to sit back and say, well, if nobody's confronting me, then I guess I'm good. You know, if nobody's coming to me, it's their job to come to me. I don't need to go to anybody else. Well, no, Scripture has made it clear elsewhere. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, and here it's not just sin. If they are hurt by you, offended by you, upset by you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
I mean, Jesus is speaking of, of in the sacrificial system, you are bringing your offering up to the altar at the temple to be sacrificed, and you suddenly remember that there is a relationship that's not what it ought to be. For whatever reason, you leave your gift right there. You put pause on everything else, and you go fix the broken relationship. The one who has sinned has responsibility to make sure the relationship is repaired. If you know that you have hurt or sinned against or even offended someone, to whatever extent that they have something against you, you need to make an effort to repair that. But let's say you didn't do that. Let's say whatever reason you, uh, you weren't aware that you had sinned against somebody. There are times, many times, we sin in ignorance. Scripture has whole chapters on that in the Old Testament about when the people sin in ignorance, not aware that they've done something wrong. What does God require? So maybe you, you didn't know that you'd hurt somebody. You didn't know you'd done something wrong. Or sometimes our heart is so hardened that we are blind to the sins that we commit. So for whatever reason, you have not gone to repair what is wrong. According to these verses, the responsibility that you have when someone confronts you is to listen. Listen to them. Because they are bringing to you not just their words. You are to listen to the Word of God in that situation and the commands of God. And that word listen is not just listen, I hear you. Yes, okay, I'm going to hear you out and then get out of my face sort of thing. No, it's listen like when a parent tells a child, hey, go clean your room. They're like, okay, yeah, I heard you. Have they listened? No. They listen when they do what they're told to do. And in this passage, the, the, the one who has sinned is responsible to listen, i.e. obey. They're called to obey the Word of God and repent and change what they have done. That's the commandment. But here's what's really beautiful about a community that's centered on the Gospel. Dealing with sin and broken relationships is not left just to the people involved, but the whole community has a responsibility and takes on a role. So we've looked at the responsibility of the one who has sinned against and the one who has sinned. Now we look at the responsibility of the community. If your first attempt to gain your brother or sister doesn't work, if they don't listen and respond to the Scripture that you bring to them, verse 16 says the next step is to take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus is using the language of the legal code of the Old Testament. You couldn't charge somebody unless there were two or three witnesses. And part of that was to protect those who might be uh, condemned to make sure that there was a clarity in the process. It's to make sure it's done fairly. It's to help the sinner and the victim to make sure that everyone is protected in that process. And it's really a beautiful picture of living out the Gospel in community together. If two people are struggling to reconcile, we don't just say, All right, you guys go work on that by yourselves and let us know when you've got it fixed. No, it's a recognition that every relationship in the body of Christ affects the whole. It's not for nothing that Paul uses the imagery of the physical body to describe the unity that we have. So that if, if my thumb is not getting along with my hand, I don't just say, hey guys, fix it. You know, My whole body hurts if two of its members are not working the way they ought to be together. And so the whole community says, we are going to get involved. We are going to help. And the responsibility of the community goes even further than just bringing people along to help. 
In verse 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to the two or three, then tell it to the church. That word church here should not be understood as a Sunday morning gathering of worship. We are not going to pause. Hey guys, before we sing the next song, we're going to invite brother so-and-so up here and we're going to talk about his sin. There are churches that do that. We do not see Scripture telling us that's the way it should be. That's kind of the opposite of what Jesus is telling us here. That word church means the assembly, the gathering. It's used to describe the gathering of God's people. And in in Jesus' day, speaking of doing something before the church or taking something to the church would be referencing the, uh, the chosen leaders of that community called the elders. The men who had been given responsibility to make judgments and decisions on behalf of the larger community. And we have, we have followed that, uh, that biblical institution. We have elders in the churches today, chosen by the church members, and tasked with the responsibility of making decisions, making judgment, and shepherding and caring for the flock. And so when someone continues to reject a call to repentance, It should be brought before those who are given leadership in the church. The hope is that those people who represent the church in its authority and represent God's authority can call the brother or sister to repentance. Always doing so, as we saw earlier, in a spirit of gentleness, hoping for restoration. But it doesn't always work. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We don't ever want to see it come to this. We take every step to make sure it doesn't. But when someone refuses to respond to God's Word, when when an individual and then several individuals and finally the leadership of the church comes to them and says, "My, my dear sister, my dear brother, look at how God's Word calls His people to live. And you're not doing that. We're not asking you to just bow to our preferences. We're saying... Look at what God calls His people to do. And if someone refuses to listen, at that stage, we have no basis to believe that they are a follower of Jesus because they're not following His Word. Jesus says they should be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. Um, What does that mean today? Uh, The Gentiles and tax collectors were the outsiders. They were not a part of the community of God's people. Because of the, the, the life that they had chosen, the, the obedience and loyalties they had chosen excluded them from the community of God's people. What we would call like a non-believer or a non-Christian. So how do we treat somebody like a Gentile or a tax collector? Well, some churches have taken this idea and developed a, a concept they call shunning. Where somebody who, who is in sin and, and doesn't live the way the church thinks they should live, they, they, they are cast out. They're not welcome anymore. They're, they're not allowed in the building. You don't talk to them on the phone. You don't have them over for dinner. You reject them until they repent. And I would suggest that a faithful reading of Scripture shows that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is calling us to do. That couldn't be further from His meaning, in fact. Because what was Jesus accused of in how He related to tax collectors and Gentiles and sinners and outsiders? Nobody accused him of being unwelcoming to those people. The problem was he treated them well. He welcomed them. He pursued them. He went to their houses and had dinner with them. He had conversations with them. He did not 
allow them to become disciples until they repented. But he sought them out like the shepherd seeks out a lost sheep. He does not shut them out or turn them away. So the church, when we are faced with someone who rejects the word of God and will not repent, we treat them as we're called to treat everyone who is not living according to God's word. We say, my dear friend, I want to love you as a brother and as a sister, and I cannot do so until you repent and follow God's word. In the meantime, with love and patience and mercy and hope and tenderness and welcome and hospitality, I'm going to continue to reach out to you. That's what it means if we're following the example of Jesus. That's what it means to treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile. We are to remove the presence of sin from God's people by calling each other to repent of our sins and by not considering a Christian someone who will not leave their sin. At this point, we need to pause and ask ourselves, who do we think we are? What right do we have to make those kind of judgments about people? Honestly, if we're not careful, everything we've just looked at in that whole process can just end up being a judgmental, unloving power play. Who are we to say that somebody has to repent? Who are we to decide who is and is not part of the community of God's people? That's the very issue that Jesus goes on to address in the next few verses. He begins describing how there's something very unique about the church when it gathers in the name of Jesus. Something that distinguishes the church and sets it apart from any other gathering of people. Something that gives the church the authority to act in the way that Jesus is telling us that we need to act. If we are to remove the presence of sin from the community of God's people, then we must first recognize the presence of Christ within the community of God's people. If we confront someone's wrongdoing and bring others into the conversation and ultimately ultimately bring the church into that conversation, if we are doing that only on our own authority, then we have merely become the oppressors and the bullies who are forcing people to conform to our preferences. That's why Jesus, in the context of telling us how important it is to confront and deal with sin, goes on to explain that He is present with His authority among the community of God's people. And that's where we get this famous verse 20, which I'm sure many of you have heard many times. For where two or three, or gather, where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I among them. I don't know about you, but I I heard that a lot growing up in the church. And usually it was in the context of prayer or worship. If we just have, it doesn't matter how many people show up, if we just have two or three people there, God is present. Okay, but that's not the point, is it? If we're reading this in the context of what Jesus is saying, it's not about prayer, it's not about worship, it's about discipline. And correction. Jesus is always with us, whether we have two or three people or just one. Jesus is with you always. Uh, one of my favorite Psalms, 139, says in verses 7 through 12, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to the heaven, you're there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you're there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The point is there's nowhere you can go and God is not present with you. He is with you always, full stop, period. Nothing else needs to be said on that. He's always with you. Two or three or just one. But when we're caught up in a situation where we are dealing with sin and someone has hurt us and we need help confronting them, and especially if it goes so far that they are not repenting even when other wise believers are counseling them, we need to be sure that we are not doing this on our own wisdom or authority. And so Jesus reassures us that though on our own, our wisdom might go astray, when we take counsel together as God's people, when we hold each other accountable, we have wisdom. As Proverbs 11 says, where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. I can't tell you how many times this has proven true for me personally. In a church situation, churches like this and in this church, coming into a situation where, where we have to make a hard decision or, or something I just don't know what to do. And I come into the situation with my own ideas and my own wisdom and my own judgment of what is best and what is right. And as I share that burden with others and take counsel with others, a different wisdom comes to light. A way that is better. But it's not simply a question of two heads are better than one. That's not what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 20 more carefully. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's not simply a matter of having two or three people together, is it? There's something specific about the way they gather. It has to be in His name. If you were here a few weeks ago, we, we looked at that phrase in greater detail as we talked about praying in faith and what it means to, to pray in Jesus' name. And if I could summarize what we saw in God's Word that week, it was that uh, asking in Jesus' name means asking according to His will. An ambassador doesn't go and make decisions in another country uh, based on what he thinks is right. But he's, he's representing and, and, and acting in the name of his home country and therefore can only enact the policies that his country desires and approves of. And, and as Jesus came, He said He came in the Father's name and then said, therefore I, I don't do my own will, but only the will of the One who sent Me. And so as we pray in Jesus' name, it means we are praying according to what He has already told us He wants and desires what He wills to be done. So when that is our reason to gather together, when two or three gather in the name of Jesus, meaning discern, trying to discern and enact His desires, His will, Jesus is present in a different way. His authority exists in that conversation. He's already present with every believer by His Spirit. But as multiple believers gather together and seek the wisdom of God's Word, they have the authority of God. How do we know we're acting according to God's will? We know because of His Word. We're not just individually sitting around trying to think, okay guys, what do you think? What's best here? What's a good idea? No, we come back. And we say, what does God's Word tell us about this? Now with that in mind, let's back up to the verses I skipped over. Verses 18 and 19, which 
might be confusing or might not have made a lot of sense in, in the uh, passage at first. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, what's really fascinating to me here is at the beginning of verse 19, how he connects the verses together. He says, again, I say. Which means, whatever verse 19 means, he's repeating what he said in verse 18. The two have to be understood as speaking together. So with the meaning of verse 20 in mind, that being gathered in Jesus' name means applying His Word to a situation and having God's authority when you do that. And with verses 15 through 17, the context setting it up that we're talking about calling people to repentance and, and, and perhaps even excluding from the community those who will not repent. What else can verses 18 and 19 mean but this? That, that if the church says, as in verse 17, that the, the person who doesn't repent is not living as a Christian and shows no evidence of being saved, then the church declares that that person still needs to come to faith, still needs to repent of their sin and follow Jesus. That is the binding and the loosing that Jesus was speaking of in a way that reflects what's already true in God's eyes. Randy walked us through this passage in Matthew 16 a few months back. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus said to His disciples, I will give you the keys of kingdom of, of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And as He explained what that meant, He showed us that what Jesus is saying is that what the church does here on earth as it seeks faithfully and diligently and with integrity to apply God's Word what the church does on earth in baptizing, in, in declaring people to be members, in receiving them as members of the church, in, in determining who is not a member. That's not what makes a person saved or lost. That reflects what's already true in God's eyes in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. You're just declaring, you're looking behind the veil to see what God's already done. That's not something that the community of Christians does based on their own wisdom or authority. But in seeking to apply God's Word in all things. Will we get it wrong? Sure we will. Will we make mistakes and misjudge? Without question. We are human. But to the extent that we seek faithfully and with integrity and with pure motives to understand God's Word and apply it to one another's lives, calling each other to repentance, when we're doing that, we show that Christ is present with His judgment and authority. So when verse 19 says that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You can't pull that verse out of context and say, well, apparently it looks like if I can get two or three of you to agree with me that I should win the lottery this week, and we pray honestly to that end, God's promising He's going to give us whatever, whatever we ask. Read that in the context of everything else that's before and after it here. And he is saying that, look, as you seek to discern and deal with walking by faith in the community of God's people, calling people to obey God's Word, and calling them out when they don't, God will honor the prayers 
made in that context because He is there in His authority. When we do that, we are confident He can answer such prayers. This is a heavy text, no doubt about it. But there's something I really don't want you to miss as I wrap this up and as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. God does not give up on us. Do you see that in these verses? We looked at that in a little bit of detail last week in the previous verses. The good shepherd chasing down the lost sheep. God does not give up on us when we sin. He pursues us. He chases us down. And He expects that we will change. We will grow. We will respond to discipline. And because God does not give, on us, give up on us, He commands that we not give up on each other. That when we see our brother and sister in sin, we don't write them off. We don't say, well, so much for them. Guess that's how it's always going to be. No. We pursue them with the hope and expectation that they will change because God's Spirit is at work in them. And we pursue that until it is evident that they are not responding in the power of God's Spirit, but have rejected His Word entirely. That kind of hope is only possible because the Gospel doesn't end with forgiveness. The Gospel doesn't end with forgiveness. Sin isn't just forgiven, my brothers and sisters. Sin is defeated. I only heard one amen. I need some more on that. Sin is not just forgiven. It is defeated. Okay, And so our hope as we reach out to one another, as we hold each other accountable, as we open people up, open our lives up to the people in our lives, our hope is not just the forgiveness of sin, but freedom from it. Our hope and our expectation for ourselves and one another is not just that we will forgive or overlook sin, but that we will be restored to the image of God in us. Each of us growing in grace until we're freed from sin in the kingdom of God. That's the hope of the Gospel. Not forgiveness only, but freedom from sin. And to move us towards that, to keep us on track, God didn't just throw us in the deep end, give us a Bible and say, good luck doing that. He has given us His Spirit to make us able to obey, and He has given us one another so that when I'm off track, you who see, my, who see me better than I see myself can say, Brother Rob, you can't do that. And when I see you not living the way God calls you to live, I say, brother, sister, there is a better way that God has given us. That's how much He loves us. He's given us one another to help us grow in His image. He has given us the community of saints with the power to remove sin because Christ is present with His people. With that in mind, in the presence of Christ on our minds, let us prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.